Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's September 2023. Bathing hospital patients and long-term care facility residents is an important infection prevention strategy that may sound easy and straightforward, but several studies, including two papers published in this month's issue of Itchy, have found that deficiencies in this horizontal infection prevention strategy are quite common, placing patients and residents at unnecessary risk. I have invited authors from these two papers, as well as one of the authors of the recently published Shea IDSA APIC compendium paper on implementing strategies to prevent infections to join me today to talk about their work and how we can make care safer by evaluating and improving bathing practices in our healthcare facilities. Joining today from the University of California Irvine School of Medicine in Irvine, California, are Dr. Susan Huang, Professor of Infectious Diseases and the Medical Director of Epidemiology and Infection Prevention for UCI Health, and Ravina Singh, Senior Clinical Research Coordinator Supervisor at UC Irvine Medical Center. Also with us today are Dr. Michael Lin, an Associate Professor of Medicine in Infectious Diseases and the Hospital Epidemiologist at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, and Dr. Josh Shafson, an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Ottawa and a Staff Physician at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us, Dave. Great. Thanks for joining me. So Susan, Ravina, and Mike, I'm going to ask you to talk in detail about your studies shortly. But before I do that, I'd like you to help me set the stage for our listeners so that we all understand the rationale for studies such as yours. So my first question is, what do we know about the role of bathing in general in the prevention of healthcare-associated infections? David, I can start. Iowa study was conducted in nursing homes. And in that setting, bathing is incredibly important for hygiene and comfort and feeling confident in how they look. But it's also equally important to make sure that the skin is healthy and prevents infections. Yeah, I'd say that residents often have breaks in their skin. You know, the types of individuals that we're talking about, they might have devices or wounds. And these things make it easy for germs to get in and cause trouble. So it's really important for bathing to prevent disease by caring for things like rashes and pressure ulcers and surgical wounds that affect the skin barrier. And Mike, your study looked specifically at bathing patients with chlorhexidine gluconate, a topical antiseptic. So why is chlorhexidine sometimes used for bathing in healthcare settings? What benefits does this offer over bathing with soap and water? The chlorhexidine gluconate, also known as CHG, is an antiseptic that has broad antimicrobial properties. And so it is used on the skin to reduce the burden of bacteria and fungi. And in turn, that helps to reduce the risk of infection. The clear benefits are for bloodstream infections among patients, especially those who have central lines. But there's also great evidence to show that if you reduce bile burden on a patient, It also has secondary effects of reducing environmental contamination and contamination of healthcare worker hands who may be touching that patient and bringing germs to other patients. I'll load in for long-term care, even though our study isn't using chlorhexidine, but we've shown that in long-term care, and and Mike has shown this as well, really nice work done for something as serious as carbapenem-resistant data. But we have shown that you can actually reduce hospitalizations due to infection. That's a pretty big outcome for being able to clean and bathe well with an antiseptic. 
Well, I think you make a pretty convincing argument that bathing, whether it's with soap and water or with an antiseptic such as chlorhexidine, can help to prevent infection in the person who's being bathed or prevent person-to-person transmission of pathogens, and that this really should be a basic component of all of our infection prevention programs. And I think it could be easy to think that this strategy should really be an easy win for us. You know, it's just bathing, right? <laughs> but like many things, it's not as simple as you might initially think. And in fact, Ravina and Susan, the title of your paper is Not as Simple as It Seems, Extensive Facility and Training Gaps in nursing home bathing. So let's talk about your study. What led you to conduct a study of bathing among nursing home residents? You know, we've been invested in this concept of simple things that you can do to make infections less likely. And bathing is just one of those really basic things that if you can keep the skin clean, then you don't shed into the environment and you don't spread it to others, but you yourself don't have a chance for the germs to go where they shouldn't be. So we've been in invested in bathing for a really long time as one of these simple solutions that everybody needs to do, but just needs to do it correctly. So what specific question or questions did you try to answer in your study? So we were interested in looking at whether bathing or showering was appropriately done in nursing homes. We know, for example, that people don't always understand that a bath isn't just for comfort. They don't understand the value that it's actually to prevent infection. And in general, it's really assumed that everybody knows how. You don't really have to train them. You know, everybody cleans themselves when they grow up, and so therefore it must be intuitive or instinctive. And effectively, what we find is that that's not true. Staff don't know what to do when the skin isn't intact. And they generally might avoid where it's a rash or it's denuded or it's abraded or there's wounds or devices because either they are afraid because they don't have experience with it or they think they shouldn't touch it or it might hurt. And yet these are the most important parts of areas to clean to prevent infection. So we were looking at these really basic elements, which body parts are cleaned, are they cleaned well? Are they soaked up well? Are the procedures done properly? Is the pressure on the skin done well? Are there facility issues like you don't have as many showers as you need or you don't have enough hot water? So that was the intent of what we were trying to answer. And I don't know, Ravina, if you want to talk about how we tried to get at that. (laughs) Yes, we did an observational study of bathing with regular soap and water in eight nursing homes. And then we used the standardized form. Basically, we watched a total of 50 showers and 50 bed baths, and we divided them equally among the eight sites. So I'll just just jump in. I'll just say, so it's one thing that I really loved about Susan Embervina's study was that exact point that we all assume we know what bathing is, but we can't make that assumption. And we need to be clear on what our definitions are, what our purposes are and what we're trying to achieve. I think that's a huge piece of implementation, but it's also something so simple and something that's so easily overlooked. So what did you find as you did this study? Oh, I am happy to take that one. It was alarming. We found that nearly all body sites were poorly cleaned. The most common failure was that soap wasn't even applied. And when it was applied, they didn't even massage it in well. Of course, you have to rub and remove sweat, germs, and grime. But even when you're washing, they're supposed to bathe from clean sites first to dirty sites. For example, we want to start from the arm to the armpit or from the stomach to the perineum. These are issues that are really important for infection prevention, and they are not being trained. And I think they also, for example, use one cloth 
for the whole thing. It doesn't matter if it starts to get soiled, you know, they're moving either quickly. And I think that it's an oversight, much like what Josh just said. There's so many things that if you don't think about it, people just assume that, of course, you would know. But when you watch it, they don't even realize it. It's getting dirty. They really should change. They're not going from clean to dirty sites. They're doing the other way. But all of that is really a problem that doesn't get manifest unless someone identifies it and tries to help them fix it. We also found that there were facility problems. You know, 96% of the residents were cold. And, you know, not having enough hot water can tell you one of our favorite questions in the end was, you know, what did you learn? What would you tell someone who needs to bathe, you know, in the nursing home? And the two things that they said is go get the best shower. Get, make sure you get the one that has more hot water or go early in the day because that's when the water hasn't run out. So that's not OK. You know, and if we look at the cold versus hot, if they're warm, they're more likely to wash their hair. If they're warm, the procedures get done twice as well as if the person is cold and you're rushing and trying to, you know, get the person back into their clothes because they're feeling cold. So there are some real system problems and facility problems that need to be monitored to make sure that people can do the well-intentioned good job. So there's both things, training and hot water. And, you know, I will add that you might think that they don't care. You might think that this is so obvious. So why don't they care? And, you know, I'll say, while it's true that for some, they only see this as a maybe a paycheck or need to put food on the table. And, you know, but there are many that deeply care who work with their heart, commit long term and retire with pride, like actually my mother who worked as a CNA for over 30 years. But I will say even those who care, you're not going to be able to do the job without wanting to train them. That's a really great point. Sometimes we see that People aren't doing something that we expect them to do or that they're supposed to do. And we say that they don't care. And that can't be further from the truth. It's that the system is not there to support them. They haven't had the adequate training. They don't have the adequate facilities. It's not prioritized for them. So if they're given too many tasks to do or, you know, not in your study, but in others where patients might be combative, there are barriers to them doing what they want to do that they care about. And I'll point out, I think you mentioned it at the beginning, but in case people didn't catch it, Ravina, you did this study in eight different nursing homes. And so this wasn't just one nursing home that was performing poorly. This was a fairly widespread problem that you identified, which might suggest that this may be applicable to the facilities that our listeners may be affiliated with. But in addition to the fact that it wasn't a limited number of nursing homes, are there any other limitations or caveats guarding your study that we should be aware of as we're thinking about how it might apply in our own situations? Probably the largest one in addition to the location. So this was done in Southern California. So all the nursing homes were there. Although I would say that, agree, we're in a lot of nursing homes for a lot of different studies. And we don't think that this was a singular issue for those areas. I also think maybe the other thing, though, is that this was conducted at the fall of 2022. So these nursing homes had some staff shortages. Some of them are still experiencing staff shortages that could have affected the bathing process. And it's important to know that I think that just to recapitulate what Josh was saying, many of these staff, you know, we're observing them. They know we're observing them where there's no way for us to hide, but they really do feel like they're doing a good job. They're proud of their job. And that means that we need to do better in getting them to understand what that good job might be. Mike, the research that you and your colleagues performed was done in a very different setting, but I think it dovetails nicely with the work that Susan and Ravina just described. 
So what were the things that you were trying to learn in your study? So our study was very similar to Susan and Ravina's study in the sense that we were observing, or I should say, we were evaluating a common practice in the hospital, which is cleaning a patient. In this case, using chlorhexidine gluconate as a method of both cleaning the patient and also preventing infection. I think there is a common assumption that chlorhexidine bathing, once it's being done in a unit, that it's done uniformly across the patient's skin, that it's done every day. But you know, you always have to verify these things. And so we have seen already some data, our own and also others, that suggests that oftentimes CHG bathing is not done in a uniform way. So our study, and I should make sure I give really props to Yuna Rhee, who was the lead author on the study and really was propelling the whole study forward, and also the seven hospitals that participated, including UC Irvine, where Susan's from, and also Brigham and Women's, Penn Presbyterian, Duke University Hospital, Barnes-Jewish, John Stroger Hospital, and ours at Rush. We, as seven hospitals, did a quality improvement study where we measured CHD skin levels on a point prevalence survey type approach across our medical ICUs. We did this three times during a baseline period just to establish some sense of how well or how poorly CHG was being applied. And then we had an intervention period where we would feed back some of those CHG skin measurements to ICU leadership and eventually to the bathers to see if that information could improve bathing. And what we found was that there was actually a lot of variability across all ICUs for bathing, um, such that when we looked at CHG levels, the skin concentrations, the necks versus the axilla versus the groin, which were the three areas that we sampled, varied from a median of 9.8 for neck to 19.5 for axilla to 39.1 for the groin. And while these are potentially levels that are enough to inhibit a lot of bacteria, there are many bacteria that have relatively high MICs or minimum inhibitory concentrations where you might not be able to get good inhibition. And also strikingly, we found that many body sites just were not clean at all. We could not find detectable CHG. So 33% of necks, about 20% of axillas or groins were not clean at all, at least based on the measurement of CHG on the skin. So these are areas, especially in the necks, where many central lines are located. And so we found a lot of opportunities for improvement in the baseline period. And it looks like you also did, similar to Susan Ravine, you did some direct observations of bathing. And what you saw from what I read looked very similar to what you found with your chlorhexidine data in that there was no bathing at all of necks, axilla, and the groin areas in like 30 to 40% of the patients that you directly observed the bath. Is that correct? Yes, I think that's important because, you know, our study really did focus on using skin swabbing to detect CHG skin concentrations. We did want to correlate that with direct observation because we realized that for most hospitals, that's the most practical way to be able to assess bathing quality. And CHG skin concentration measurement is not commercially available. So it's something that's still more in the research domain. So yes, I think what we found with direct measurement on the skin, we could also easily see looking at it through observation. Great. And so then once you started feeding the data back to the units, what did you find? Uh, was that helpful in terms of improving the CHG bathing and compliance or adherence? And so during the intervention period, we fed back data three times, and this was with enough lead time before each of the three subsequent point prevalence surveys where ICUs could take information 
go back to their bathers and say, hey, look, we are missing 33% of necks, or we're not using enough pressure when we're doing bathing to be able to get good CHG into the skin. These were all things that could be data-driven and communicated to the frontline staff who were doing the bathing. And we did find that with iterative feedback, that there was an increase in CHG skin concentrations overall. And what we found was that there was a bit a difference in terms of the hospitals and the formulations of CHG that were used. But we found that hospitals that use the CHG impregnated wipes, the 2% impregnated wipes, had about a three times increase in CHG skin concentrations achieved during that intervention period. We did see increases too in the hospitals that use liquid CHG and that was not statistically significant, but there was at least an unadjusted increase in those concentrations as well. So using concentrations as surrogate for bathing quality, we did find that in general, feedback did help overall for improving quality. Do we know what type of feedback the bathers were given? Is, are there things that we can learn and take away from your study in terms of what was successful in the intervention period? I think one of the things we tried to do was to really let each of the ICUs determine what was the best way to feedback the information. So there was some heterogeneity, and we really wanted to just use the routine effector arms that were already in place at the hospitals. And I would say that much of what was done was direct coaching and feedback in small groups to be able to communicate areas of improvement. And it was you know, multimodal as well. Almost every hospital also used signage and other educational materials to be able to convey this information, which can be somewhat complex. Some of the things that we were discussing with our staff was just making sure that we could encourage bathing in a systematic way. So starting with one body part and moving to another so that you wouldn't skip over body sites and then using the proper technique. So one of the things that we really did emphasize was there's some confusion over the neck and whether or not the neck is clean should be clean with CHG. And that has to do with some of the prior education about, well, you should really try to avoid the face. That, that was some of the earlier teaching with CHG to not get CHG into the eyes or the ears. That itself is less of a concern these days, but I think that teaching early on has kind of persisted to the point where some bathers are afraid to wash the neck. And if we say start from the jawline downward, some interpret that instruction as just avoiding the neck. So there is some intentional education that needs to be done. And I think it's hard to realize what needs to be done unless you do the observations or you have to check for it with measurement. I think that, so what I really like about this study and from an implementation standpoint, I think there are two things. One is you were looking at reliability. How consistently are we doing something that we've been trained to do, right? And that we're expected to do, but that the heterogeneity built into the real world observational design showed efficacy, really letting ICUs do the training, the teaching, the feedback, the way that they know how, right? So good implementation takes into account the context that you're working in and what works in your context. And I think that it was really nice to see that your study was in so many different places and it worked by letting people do what they know how to do. I think this is a great Time to transition over to the discussion of the implementation strategies paper that you were one of the authors of, Josh, that was part of the Shea IDSA APIC Compendium of Strategies to Prevent HAIs in Acute Care Hospitals. 
Because I think even though we haven't said it out loud, I think what we're all saying is that both of these studies found substantial implementation problems, right? So we have a very well-established evidence-based practice. It's in our policy or our protocol, but it hasn't quite made its way consistently to the bedside. So Josh, can you talk a little bit about implementation problems or implementation and what we should be thinking about as we either identify them or encounter them, or how can we even identify these problems? Yeah, so I think that it's a big challenge because it's such a potentially broad question and broad answer. But I think that what we try to do in the compendium chapter is to break it down into three basic steps. Step one is identify your determinants. Step two is identify your measures. And step three is pick a framework and get going. So determinants are barriers or facilitators, things that keep you from doing what you need to do or things that enhance your ability to do what you need to do. So examples would be the presence of hot water, the having enough showers, the adequate training those sorts of things. Also in terms of points of confusion or retraining that's necessary for people in ICUs about the jawline and about what's safe and what's not safe. So those are gained through observation and through qualitative talking to people or doing surveys. It's very important to go out and see what the real world is and see what people are doing. There's a concept in lean methodology called going to the gimba, and it's walking the process and respecting the people doing the process and just trying to understand how they do what they do, which I thought was really a nice piece about the survey that the first study did where they said, what advice would you give? It's a really nice way to get people's insight. Step two, once you understand your determinants, you need to ask, what are you trying to achieve? And so you want to create your measures. So you're looking at the amount of CHG on skin. You're looking at the efficacy or the thoroughness of bathing. You're looking at the frequency of bathing. You also want to try to look at outcomes if you can. So infection, right, or what you're trying to prevent, collapses or what have you, that's a little harder to do, but a larger scale study can do that. And then if you can, you want to have a balancing measure, which is what is an unintended consequence of my intervention? So could you, by training people to scrub more or rub more soap in nursing home residents, could you create more tears in skin and more damage, which would be a problem? And you'd want to know that. And then the last is to take into account your determinants, which will teach you about your context. You have your measures. Now pick a framework or pick a methodology and start implementing. And I think that's where people get caught up. But if they do the first two steps, I think the next steps become very evident. And there are lots of ways to learn. There's lots of expertise in the field. Many institutions have internal expertise in these different methodologies, model for improvement being one, the four E's being another one. And many of these would be appropriate for either of these processes or both of them, depending on the context. Great. And I think we should point out that even though this paper that you wrote is part of the compendium that's for preventing infections in acute care hospitals, all of the concepts and techniques and 
things that you talked about are certainly relevant in any healthcare scenario or setting. So it's certainly not specific to those working in acute care hospitals. The other thing I'll point out is that that paper, as well as all the compendium papers, are available on the ITCHE website with open access, freely available to anyone. So we encourage anybody to take a look at those, download those, share those widely in your institution so that everybody can benefit from all the time, effort, and expertise that the authors have put into that document. So thanks to you and your colleagues, Josh. Yeah, my co-authors, Kavita Trivedi and Sean Berenholtz and Valerie Deloney from Shea, a huge support. We really enjoyed writing this chapter. We were thrilled to see that, to put a specific chapter. And as you said, it can be spread to other places, but there's so much more work to be done. And we're already talking about and looking forward to the next iteration because there are so many challenges. We know what we want to do. We know what our patients need and what people need. And we just have to figure out how can we actually do that reliably to make a huge difference. I always learn something about implementation when I hear people who are experts in it talk about it. And I'll let our listeners know in case you missed it, the February 2022 podcast featured Julie Simzak and Dan Lavorsi, and they talked about using implementation science principles in antimicrobial stewardship. So if that's something that people are interested in, I encourage you to go back and catch that one. But I'd like to bring this discussion now back to the topic of bathing. And I suspect that the findings from both of these studies that we heard about today are not unique to the sites where those studies were conducted, and that many of those same challenges and opportunities for improvement have been found elsewhere, or if we haven't looked, we'd probably find them if we look for them in our own facilities. And so with that in mind, I'm going to ask each of you to give our listeners an action item or a practical tip that they can take away from the podcast today, go back to work, and put into action immediately to start to make improvements in their own facilities. So I'll just say that I guess the official question then is, what advice would you give to someone who has either not assessed implementation of their facilities bathing protocol or who has assessed it and found some deficiencies? So I will ask Ravina, can you get us kicked off on this one? Sure. I think we need to teach staff that bathing is highly important part of what they do. And cleaning a resident well removes germs and prevents infections. I'll add to that. And I think the way to do that, or a couple of ways to do that is we have to observe. So I think having an assessment form is helpful. So the standardized form that we have in the appendix of our paper is just a one pager that you can start to see because you don't know what to look for, then you won't know what's wrong. And so that kind of helps you get through the critical areas. And we're pleased to say that we're actually creating free kind of direct to staff nursing home bathing training modules, just recognizing that it's not okay that nobody has told them what is right and wrong and what to look for and what does clean to dirty mean. And so we are eager to have those freely available. They're in a, It's kind of a piloting phase right now, but we hope to have those out soon as well. Great. Mike. You're next. One way to potentially help to reframe what we're talking about as bathing is to call CHG actually a treatment rather than a bath. And I think sometimes calling it a treatment orients the person who's bathing to thinking that there is a purpose. There's something that's medically consequential. And from that, then you can start to frame everything else in terms of, well, this is the why when you're trying to make improvements. So this has been something that we've seen in our own hospital and in other hospitals get operationalized. And it's just a start, but I think sometimes reframing can be really helpful as a first step. 
I'll second that completely. I think it's so important. Again, we get used to it. We think it's so simple, like walking or talking. And so we don't pay attention unless you call it something really important. It's a treatment. It prevents infections. Yep. We use it in pediatrics a lot to help parents put it in context in terms of risks. When we talk about neonates, when we talk about smaller bodies and mucous membrane and potential absorption, we talk about it as a regimented treatment. Like this is something specific that we're trying to do with a specific purpose. So my one piece of advice would be that education is extremely important. It is necessary, but insufficient. And I would challenge institutions to go beyond education. So we are all very well educated and we all have to learn how to do things. We have to learn how to walk. We have to learn how to bathe ourselves. We have to learn how to bathe other people. But good implementation and successful implementation doesn't end there. It looks at the system and modifies the system. If you had unlimited showers and hot water in institutions, you might see an improvement without additional training. Think about with that training, how much more you could achieve. So that would be my one challenge to people. I want to highlight just the really neat innovation that Mike has done that to create a way to give feedback in a way that detects how much chlorhexidine is on the skin is really powerful. And you can see that having objective measures that people can respond to can really change behavior. So tools are good. Education is good. But these types of innovations, I think, are critical. And I think the field, if it were available easily, would adopt it readily. Yeah, and I think I'm always impressed, Susan, with just the observation studies that you do in bathing or showering, I think there's probably a lot of barriers to overcome from the resident or patient point of view when you're asking to observe something like that. So sometimes the skin swabs can get around that, of course, and you're not watching the bath occur at the time. But I'm curious, just as you were carrying out your nursing home study, just how much of a barrier was it to get the resident's permission to observe Like all things, I think we operate in a quality improvement realm. And so it's really important that the facilities understand that this is for their value. So each of the nursing homes that we were in actually put that into their quality assurance meeting, that we care about this. We want to know how it's being done. This is important for us. And so we are going to allow this assessment to be done to give feedback operationally for how we can do better in bathing and showering. I think other than that, it would have been pretty difficult. So this was at a nursing home level that the leadership felt this was a quality improvement assessment. How about at the resident level when you were going in and asking the resident for permission? Did you find that it was an awkward interaction or were they readily? So I'll say it first and then Ravina can jump in. I think that what is really nice is residents feel very comforted when their nurse is there. And so we weren't doing the bath and the nurse is there and the trust that's built over time, I think, between the residents and their nurse. So generally, when we're doing something like swabbing or we're doing something like bathing, if it's the nurse that's doing it, someone familiar to them, then they're unlikely to refuse. We did ask for assent for all of them that they recognized that we were there and that we were just watching and why, more importantly, you know, that we're there to just observe how baths are done and how showers are done. But Ravina, do you want to say anything more about that process? Sure. We did not have any concerns or issues with us being able to watch the residents when they were giving a bath. The residents are usually too busy focusing on themselves. So usually we would ask them if it was okay to watch them, you know, and if they're unable to give an assent, the observation was usually allowed to occur, as Susan mentioned, under quality improvement purposes. And usually, you know, we're not intervening when we're watching them. So we don't really have any problems. I think it's really interesting how 
framing is very important in those situations. I think people who participate in healthcare understand that we want it to be as good as it can be and that we want to improve it. And I think they're excited when they're able to be part of it. They don't want to be part of experimentation. They want to help us learn from their experiences. And I think when you frame it that way, be it we're trying to improve bathing overall, would it be okay with you if I observe one of your activities of daily living? Or if it's, we need this treatment in order to help you, or for example, in surgical site infection prevention, we had an intervention where we were screening patients with a swab for Staph aureus, and we wanted to swab their rectal area. And all the physicians were very squeamish about it. Oh, I don't think we could do that. I don't think we could do that. So we went directly to the parents and the families, and they said, if it'll help my kid, that's fine. And they just did it. No problem. I think those were great suggestions. And if I can sort of summarize, it seems like things that you're recommending to people are, you know, get out there and see what's really happening. Find out what the barriers are, what that local context is that either might help you get improvement or what's preventing you from getting to improvement. And then feeding back data, that seems to be a really important lesson learned from Mike's study, that that really does make a difference. And we've certainly seen that in other implementation studies where that feedback of data to the frontline people who want to do a good job really can help make a difference. So I want to thank all of you once again for spending time with us today, talking about your research and how to more effectively integrate evidence-based infection prevention interventions into our daily practice. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. 